first um, line for today, December 9th. Be willing to go out on a limb with me. And I thought, oh my gosh, that is perfect. That just sums up Kathy, Kathy in a nutshell because she has just taken some great risk and gotten some great rewards. And um, anyway, I didn't want to spend a lot of time on my introduction because I really want to give her most of the time that we have today. But just um, let me say that Kathy is a um, wife and a mother of four daughters and has a, um, had a long career in graphic design and then decided to, to make a change. And she's going to tell you more about it. But Kathy attends Christ Church in Charlotte, and we're just happy to have her with us today. So please help me welcome Kathy Izzard. Thank you guys so much. Um, I think there's nothing harder than asking a bunch of women to make some time at Christmas because there's so much that we should be doing or feel like we have to be doing. We're in charge of everybody's happiness at Christmas. So thank you guys for taking some time to make yourselves happy this Christmas. And I hope that I will leave you with a little something um, in your heart today, kind of a gift for yourself because you took this time. So thank you for being here. I know um, a lot of you don't know much about me. Maybe you just know that I've um, done something with the homeless. And so some of you might think, oh, it's going to make me feel guilty today. Um, I'm not sure I want to hear this. Um, so I thought I would start with a true confession. And that is the only reason that I ended up down at the Urban Ministry Center, which is our soup kitchen, is because it was a good way to get out of church. And um, what I mean by that was um, in 1995, um, this was my life. I had these four precious girls. Um, but as you can see, they're, they're kind of tomboys. This is what they look like in their everyday life. And, you know, there was soccer on Saturdays. So when I would get up on Sundays and say, okay, time for church, and to drag them out of their soccer cleats and their muddy jeans and into tights and smock dresses and um, patent leather shoes, no one was with me, and it was always a fight. And so Sundays was always that day that I knew that once I dragged them into the minivan and, and got to church, there was probably not a sermon anywhere that was going to save me from that fashion exhaustion. Um, so I saw one day in the bulletin that they were looking for volunteers um, to work in the soup kitchen. And I thought, well, I could work with that because probably jeans are only required there. And that is how my family ended up um, working one Sunday a month down at the Urban Ministry Center, which is um, Charlotte's Soup Kitchen. And it kind of looked like this when we would go down there. I would take my little girls in there, and we'd you know, put some up with the peanut butter and jelly, and they'd make sandwiches, and then we would be making soup in this 30-gallon pot. It was kind of like stone soup. You never know who was going to be showing up or what was going to be in the refrigerator. You just had to make it work. And we were um, usually feeding about four to 600 people on an average Sunday. And I can tell you that it became not only because of the jeans that my kids got to wear, it became our favorite Sunday of the month. And my kids would say, is it Soup Kitchen Sunday? And they were so excited about it. Um, and I, I started for a while to think, well, it was just that informal you know, time that we got to do. But I know that the, the place kind of started to seep into our soul. And my kids loved helping, and they loved being a part of something, and they loved doing good. And we loved it as a family. 
And so it really did just become this, this favorite um, time in our family. But it wasn't a place that I really thought I could do much more than serve soup. Um, and I really looked. I stayed behind the counter at the soup kitchen. I tried really hard to keep the people I was serving at arm's distance because it all looked very messy and unfixable and probably something I was going to just, you know, feel bad about if I got to really know somebody. So I stayed that way for a good 10 years, um, just serving soup, feeling good, going home. And all that changed in 2007 um, when I read a book called Same Kind of Different as Me. And I don't know if any of you here have read this, um, but it's a story about a man, um, Ron Hall, who meets um, Denver Moore in the Fort Worth soup kitchen. And they ended up changing each other's life because they became family to each other. And I know this book haunted me in the first place because I couldn't believe their story because I knew that they had done the thing that I had not, you know, been brave enough to do, which was actually get to know one homeless person. And so this book haunted me in a way that I, I couldn't sleep at night. And I started hearing kind of a funny thing. And I started hearing, you should invite them to Charlotte, much like Chase invited me here today. And um, I don't know why, um, but one crazy day, I, you know, searched the internet where all answers can be found. I got Ron's email, and um, I emailed Ron. And I said, um, do you ever, you know, speak? And if you would, um, you know, would you come to Charlotte? And I pressed send, and I immediately regretted it because I had no authority. I was not Chase. I was not representing any organization. I was on the board of, of the Urban Ministry Center, but we were, did not have an event, and I had no authority to be inviting anyone. Um, and um, I guess for better or for worse, um, Ron Hall emailed me back 20 minutes later, and he said, sure, when's your event? So I had to march myself into the office of um, Dale Mullinex, who was the executive director of Urban Ministry Center, and said, hey, so there's this book, and good news, they're coming, and they're coming to our event. And he said, did I miss something? Like, are we having an event? And so friends, some friends and I got together, and we envisioned something like this. We would just have kind of a church supper, and we'd invite, you know, a couple hundred people. Um, and that morphed. If you know anything about Charlotte, people start talking and they say, oh, it's going to be great. We're going to be there. All of a sudden, we were hosting a lunch for 1,000 attendees. 1,000 people were, were coming to the lunch that wasn't to hear the people who weren't invited. And um, the whole time, I ended up having to like quit my, you know, stop working on my clients for about a month because all I was doing was seating charts and food. And I'm asking myself, why in the world did I send that email? That was so dumb. Um, and I can tell you now um, the reason that that happened um, was because the conversation that I had with Denver Moore um, the afternoon before the luncheon. And um, Denver was a really prophetic guy. You haven't read the book if you haven't, but there's things like this um, in there. The truth about it is, whether he's rich or poor or something in between, this earth ain't no final resting place. So in a way, we is all homeless, just working our way towards home. And I thought, I'm going to take Denver down to the Urban Ministry Center. He's going to change somebody's life. That's why he's here. 
that's, that's why I heard that whisper to bring Ron. He's going to take someone down there, and he's going to change a homeless person's life, and I'm going to witness it. I was, and I just knew. That's why I'm going through all this trouble. It's going to be great. And I also thought, selfishly, I, I thought he might give me a little pat on the back. God, you've been serving suit for 10 years. That is so great. And I thought, well, that's gonna be, this is going to be good. So I took him down to the Urban Ministry Center, which if you haven't been there, it's a pretty amazing place. Um, we don't just serve soup. Um, we have the mail service for every homeless person in Charlotte. Thousands of people get their mail there. Showers. We have an art program. We have a garden program. We have a soccer program. I mean, to me, we are a world-class soup kitchen, and I was really excited to show Denver this. Um, but we're walking around, and we were on an excruciating 30-minute tour. Because in that 30 minutes, Denver didn't say anything like this. In fact, he said nothing. He didn't say anything to me. He didn't say anything to one homeless person. He was just walking around with kind of that dark face you saw a minute ago, kind of, kind of just staring at everybody and everything. And we got to the end of a 30-minute tour, and um, so uncomfortable. I thought, well, I really misjudged this. And um, we were getting ready to leave. And we were standing at the um, bottom of the steps of the soup kitchen. And, and he said, well, can we go upstairs now? Like, oh, I'm touring you for 30 minutes, and what you want to see is upstairs. I said, well, it's just offices. And he said, well, where are the beds? I'm like, oh, my gosh, you haven't been paying attention. We're a soup kitchen. You know, we do all this. We're, we're not, we're a day ministry. Um, and he says, you mean to tell me you do all this good in the day and you lock them out to the bad at night? Well, yeah. Um, and he said, does that make any sense to you? No. And he said, are you going to do something about it? So I can tell you I was hoping that he was looking at someone over my shoulder. I was really hoping that Dale Mullinex was standing behind me, but he wasn't. Um, and he was looking at me, only me, and he was asking if I was going to do something about it. Um, and I, I can tell you that I'd been down there for over a decade, and I'd never once asked myself that question. I'd never once asked myself, what happens when we close the gates at 4.30? And I know to this day, and I knew in that moment, that the reason I hadn't asked myself is because then I wouldn't have slept very well at night. And so that's what started happening. We had the big event the next day. It was great. We raised more money. It was, you know, a home run. But I couldn't sleep at night um, because I couldn't stop hearing his questions. And I remembered that I had said, yeah, I'm going to do something about it. And so you might ask, where do you go from there, right? How do, how do you tell your husband, so I think I'm going to quit my job and go house homeless people? Um, well, lucky for me, it, it went okay. Um, and I ended up starting two months later as the first executive director of a program that we made up called Homeless to Homes. And um, we tried to figure out how we were going to do that. You know, if we'd started an art program and a soccer program and a garden program, well, you know, I, I guess we should start a housing program because that's really the one thing a homeless person needs is a home. Um, 
and so I spent the first um, five months of 2008 trying to figure that out. How, how would we do that? And visited a, uh, some programs across the country and tried to bring those lessons back to Charlotte. Um, we decided that we would start a pilot program and we would house 13 people directly from street to home, which is what the, the cities who were doing it the best they were doing. They weren't telling the man sleeping under the bridge he should get sober before he earned a house. They were saying, as a human being, you deserve a place to live. And it was a housing first philosophy. And so we decided we're gonna try that in Charlotte and, and see what happens. And so I finally found a landlord um, who said we could use some apartments. As you imagine, those conversations didn't go very well. If you're searching landlords and you say, well, who's the tenant? And you say, well, kind of that guy under the bridge. And they say, no, thank you. But we finally found a guy with a really Christian heart and a Christian message, and this is what he felt he was put here to do. And he let us um, rent four of his apartments. And our first day of housing was May 17, 2008. And it was an amazing day because we moved four people directly from street to home. There was a man who'd been living um, in the shelter for seven years because he had nowhere to go. There was a man who'd been living in a barn. Um, there was another gentleman who'd completed a drug treatment program, but he was going to be released onto the streets because he had nowhere to go. And then little Helen, about five foot Helen, um, who'd been in our soup kitchen since the day it opened in 1994. We'd been serving her since 1994, it was 2008, we'd served her soup all that time, and we were going to house Helen. And it was amazing. We had all these volunteers. We had people donate furniture and household goods, and we moved in, and it was just this feel-good weekend, and we had a social worker that was going to work with everybody over the weekend so I could go to sleep finally. And um, I worried all weekend because it kind of hit me. We, we weren't just, you know, giving these people a key and walking away. We weren't saying, come inside and hope that works out for you. Um, they were now part of our family, and we were part of theirs. And um, so all weekend I wondered, how's it going? I checked my phone for the social worker for any problems. Um, I started thinking, what if they burn down the apartments? We don't even, you know, what if there's a giant homeless party? What if they've invited everybody? <laughs> You know, you're just thinking about your teenagers. What would your teenagers do for their first night, right? That, that's what's going through my head. And um, so I go into Monday morning to work so nervous, just thinking, oh, my gosh, what in the world have we done? And, and little five-foot Helen comes up to me, who was so surly. I was looking for a picture. I wanted you to just show Helen, but anyway. Um, and Helen comes up and, like, hugs me around my waist, you know, she's a tiny. And I said, Helen, you know, how was your first weekend? She said, oh, my gosh. Did you see yesterday? Did you see how it rained? Well, yeah, you know, come to think of it, it was monsoon, you know, all weekend. It rained, and I didn't get wet. <laughs> and I can tell you that was such a gift that day because we had been so nervous about, how we were going to do this? How were we going to transform these lives? What were we going to do? What did this program mean? And there was Five Foot Helen telling us the bar was as high as not letting her get wet. So we went on to house 13 more, and our pilot program was full. And that's when we really started to realize that uh, we were on to something. And it, it wasn't just keeping Helen dry. 
Um, because once people moved in, amazing things were happening. Um, people who'd been on the streets as long as 20 years. And once they weren't sleep deprived, and once they were connected to medicine and services, I'm telling you some of those people could have walked in right now and there's no way you would have known they were any different or how long they'd been on the streets. And, and that's what we realized is homeless is not a state, it's an adjective that defines a condition that you are supposed to temporarily be in. And what we'd found with housing was like a cure for cancer. So why were we gonna wait on this pilot program to say maybe it works, why don't we just do it? And we knew that the, the biggest problem was going to be those apartments. How are we going to? So we decided we'd build our own. And that was going to look like um, 85 units of permanent supportive housing. Um, we were going to need land. We were going to need a lot of things. And the real problem with that was it was we had this vision and we had this passion, but it was 2008. And we got the really bright idea to launch our capital campaign um, in September of 2008. And everyone knows what happened in October of 2008, right? The world ended. And it ended in Charlotte, North Carolina with all of our finances and our banks and everything else. So it, it was probably the worst idea ever to, to launch it then. But I can tell you what happened, which is the reason why I wrote this book, The 100-Story the Home. Um, in my mind, a miracle happened in Charlotte, North Carolina. Because um, what shouldn't have happened, did. Um, and that is, person after person just started listening to something that says, hmm, maybe I can help with that. Maybe I was meant to do something about that. And there were so many God incidences and people showing up just at the time that we thought all was lost and there's just no way we could pull this off. And they just started coming. And, you know, the funny thing is, the last thing Denver said to me, well, you said two things, but after we were meeting that day and we're in the car and I'm completely baffled by what he just said about building beds. And I'm driving the car and I'm trying not to look at him because he had just sent me for a loop, and he says, you know, you don't have to be nervous. I'm like, what? Like, about the luncheon? You know, about the people? And he goes, no, about the beds. The people who are going to help you, they already know they're coming. And I can tell you that's what happened. So I have a lot of um, stories in my book, but this is my favorite story in the book. And this is one of the little miracles that kept happening over the course of raising the money for this, is that one day I go to that big mail pile that's all the mail for all the homeless, and it's organized, and there was a letter um, for me. And so I take it out as a pink envelope, Hallmark card inside, and no, no name, no return address, just one line, with five $1 bills that dropped out. And it said, um, may God bless and multiply this small amount. I can tell you that made my day. I mean, it was just like, man, you know, we have people all over this city trying to make this work, and somebody went and sent me their last $5 to say I believe and that this is going to work, right? Two weeks later, I get another one, $8. Two weeks later, three weeks later, $10, $5. Always the same thing over the course of many months. 
I started calling her my mailbox angel. Didn't know who she was. I imagined, I kind of pictured somebody who looked like Oprah with gray hair. I don't know. Um, and always pray that God will multiply and bless this small amount. And so that was the miracle of More Place, that everybody was doing everything they could to make this happen. From our mailbox angel, we had kids who did lemonade stands for $105. We have two students up at Davidson College who rode their, who rode their bikes across the country for us. It was just really unbelievable. So spoiler alert, we did it. Um, and this is what it looked like. And um, you'll recognize the name. It's called More Place. We named it after Denver Moore. And another pretty incredible story of a family named Moore who came to this um, project. Um, I won't get into that story, but I don't think it's a coincidence that the three people who made this happen were all named Moore. Um, but so this is 85 units of housing. When someone moves in, they have their own little kitchen, their own bed. They have 366 square feet to call their own and to their own life. And um, it's pretty remarkable. We've now um, expanded it to 120 units, and we've housed over 400 um, chronically homeless in Charlotte. And, the, and we do house the chronically homeless. This is not families. This is um, single individuals who have some kind of disability, whether it's a mental, physical, sometimes a combination. And we did a whole scientific study to find those most likely to die on the streets. And that's who got housed first. The, the 85 most likely to die on the streets in Charlotte were housed first. And we continued to work through a list like that and a, and a process like that. Um, so one of the great things about um, More Place and when it opened is um, we got to serve people that we'd been waiting for years. This is Dale Haley. Um, been serving him kit soup. My kids and I had served this guy soup decades. And you always knew him because he wore his cowboy hat, and he has these bright blue eyes, and he would come through the line, and he'd just look you in the eye and say, thank you, ma'am. We all knew Dale Haley. So we all could not wait to move Dale Haley into more place. Because Dale Haley... We didn't know what his story is, but we knew where he lived. We knew where his camp was. He's, he's one of those people who couldn't stay in the shelters because it was too chaotic for him. And um, so Dale had um, wandered into the woods, and he had found a place that he felt safe. And he dug a hole eight feet underground. And Dale Haley had been living in a hole in the ground for seven years. And he would come out of his hole, and he'd come have soup with us and everything. And we finally got to move. Um, Dale Haley into housing. But the best part of Dale Haley's story, Dale Haley had a mom. His mom lived in Charlotte. She didn't know how to help Dale. He disconnected from the family a long time ago. And he had certainly not told the family that he was living a, in a hole in the ground. But she knew that he got his mail down at the Irvin Ministry Center, and she knew that's where to find him. So she would write letters to Dale. And one day she read in the paper that there was this crazy group of people trying to build some housing for the homeless. And she said, well, I don't know. I don't, I don't have a lot of money. I don't, I don't know. But I can pray, and I can send what I have, and I can hope that one day that that's going to help my son. And my mailbox angel is Frances Haley, the woman who sent those letters faithfully, week after week, every last dollar, was Frances Haley. And it was Dale Haley's mom. So, 
We had no idea when we were building more place that um, Dale's mom was behind those cards and letters. And we had no idea that when we moved Dale in that that's what was going to happen. But I can tell you that is just one example of the miracle of more place and why trusting that whisper that you can do a little something, that your $5, that your card, that what you are listening to, that that matters, I think that's the lesson that we all who worked on this learned and why I just felt like those stories should not be lost. Because I hope that's the story to leave with you today. I know we all feel like, oh, I can't do anything about that. That's too big. I, you know, what I, whatever I do doesn't matter. And I can tell you more places standing today because so many people listened to that whisper, because so many people did whatever it was, as crazy as it seemed, to come to this project and to make it happen. So that's kind of what I want to ask you today. Is, it's what's whispering to you. Is there something that's been kind of chasing after you, that something that won't let you go, that you think, well, I'm too busy and it doesn't matter and, you know, who needs me? And um, So during this time of Advent, I hope that maybe you'll make some space and in the new year to listen to that. Um, there's a writer and theologian, her name is Unama Okora, and she wrote this. Advent is a season to ponder, to listen, to understand that prayer is as much about cultivating stillness and attentiveness as it is about offering words to God. This listening for God, it's difficult business. It requires a willingness to be patient and still. The hard work of Advent reflection and waiting is mingled with the gift of time and space to dream new dreams, to bathe in pools of hope, and to stretch the canvas of our imagination wide enough for God to paint God's own vision for our lives. I can tell you that 10 years ago, I never imagined quitting my job to house the homeless. Um, I never imagined building a building for homeless people. I never imagined writing a book about it. And I never imagined standing in Charleston, South Carolina, telling a group of women about it. Um, and I can tell you, um, all of that happened, not because I envisioned that for myself, um, but because I was willing to say yes. And so that's what I, I hope I leave all of you with today, is that I promise that if you start listening, there's something calling to you. And I promise that if you trust that whisper that's telling you to say yes, it won't just fill your time, it will fill your soul. And that's the gift I want to leave you with today, that I hope in this Advent season and in this new year that you can be still, that you can listen for it, and I hope you will believe in trusting that whisper. Because I think just like for me, God has something envisioned, something for your, com your canvas that is beyond anything that you can imagine. Thank you.